holiday gift giving season is approaching and we'd like to remind our listeners that an ABA membership is a gift that can be used throughout the year. As a special seasonal bonus from now through the end of the month, that's November 2017, any ABA membership purchase that's either a gift, renewal, or new membership will be entered into a contest to win the Steiner Wildlife XP 8x44 binocular. They have a $2,300 value. Join the ABA and you can be set up for a very happy holidays indeed. Head over to aba.org slash join to sign up. Hello and welcome to another episode of the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I am your host, Nate Swick, and I I want to lead off this episode with a bit of an update on our last episode. You might remember that I spoke with Alvaro Jaramillo about the birds on the Caribbean islands of Barbuda, Dominica, and Puerto Rico, and how they are doing following this past hurricane season. Uh, We spent a fair bit of that discussion talking about the imperial parrot, locally called the Cicero, and how it, at the time we were speaking, and even, even up to the time that the episode was released, had not yet been found in the forests in the upper elevations of the island of Dominica. There was concern after the passage of Hurricane Maria that the Cicero was potentially gone, that this storm was an extinction-level event for that bird, and how that was sort of heartbreaking from both a biological and a cultural standpoint. The imperial parrot adorns the national flag of uh, Dominica, one of the few nations with a bird on its flag, or at least one that isn't some variation of a stylized eagle. Well, uh, good news came last week when Birds Caribbean reported that a researcher on Dominica did find one imperial parrot, so at least the species is not extinct. Uh, There's obviously hope that as the forests on the island are further surveyed that more individuals will turn up. Uh, They are not an easy bird to find, even in the best circumstances. So the rediscovery here is is definitely a hopeful sign. Uh, One more bit of of hurricane, post-hurricane news, good post-hurricane news. We didn't didn't talk about Harvey much, but there was a concern about the habitat along the Texas coast where it made landfall, uh, especially Aransas National Wildlife Refuge, where the world's only entirely wild population of whooping cranes spends their winter. Those cranes had a very good breeding season in 2017 up at Wood Buffalo National Park in northern Alberta and Northwest Territories. Uh, 98 nests were found, 63 fledged young. That's a that's a new record up from 82 and 49, respectively. So that's, that's a very promising year. The worry was that the growth would be arrested by the condition of the wintering grounds, but Wildlife Refuge staff have reported that the marshes where the cranes spend the winter are in good shape. Uh, those sorts of coastal estuarine areas have certainly seen hurricanes before, and the environment there is pretty dynamic and pretty capable of recovering. Whether or not chemical contamination is a problem is still sort of an open question, but but it is one that will be answered soon enough as the birds are on their way right now. On the show today, Greg Neese and Ted Floyd return to talk about winter finches, specifically crossbills. This winter is looking like it will be very good for those flashy finches with the odd-shaped bills. Stay tuned for that in the last part of the episode. But first, Noah Stricker's massive global big year in 2015 is the stuff of birding legend. And his new book about that journey, Birding Without Borders, An Obsession, A Quest, and the Biggest Year in the World. It was published last month. I'll talk to Noah about his his year and his book and what he learned from that experience. All that right after this week's Rare Birds. (laughs) 
this is your rare bird focus for the first couple weeks of November 2017. This was a period of returns, species that used to be reliable in the APA area in some sense, but in recent years have been far from it, are coming back in sort of surprising ways. We'll start with the story of the corn crake, an individual from this often secretive old world species was discovered on Long Island this week, feeding nonchalantly on the shoulder of a fairly busy road for about two days. Lots of birders were able to come and see it. Uh, corn crake back in the 18th century, so you know we're going way back now, used to be a fairly common bird in the northeast of the ABA area. There are loads of records from Atlantic Canada, New England, as far south as New York, New Jersey. Changing farming practices apparently led to a decline in that species in Western Europe, and subsequent records in, in North America pretty much dried up as well. The species seems to be recovering in parts of Western Europe in recent years. It's maybe too early to attribute that to the increase on this side of the Atlantic, but this New York bird was the third in as many years following accounts from Pennsylvania and Maine, so maybe more are on the way. Unfortunately for this individual, its chosen location in New York turned out to be its downfall. On the second morning after its initial discovery, it was found dead, the victim apparently of a car strike. Uh, a lot of birders reported that second day that it was foraging quite close to the road. Thankfully, it was salvaged, taken to the American Museum of Natural History, where it was turned into a study skin, so it continues to have value even in death. Down in South Texas, the big news has been the return of the Tamalipas crow. For decades, that species was fairly reliable, especially and famously at the Brownsville City Dump. They have not been reliable there for 20 years and not recorded at all for nearly 10, until this year, that is. The, the first sign that they were on their way back came with a Tamalipas crow photographed on a pelagic out of South Padre Island, 40 miles offshore. Uh, soon afterwards, crows were seen on shore, and finally, during the lower Rio Grande Valley Birding Festival, at least a half dozen had taken up residence at the Brownville Dump once again. It's hard to know why they returned so suddenly after such a long absence. Texas birder Sheridan Coffey suggested on the ABA Rare Bird Alert Facebook group that they had been hit very hard by West Nile virus. Uh, that disease did a real number on a lot of corvids all over the continent, and they are now sort of recovering and coming back over the border. So that's sort of exciting. They are a neat, very weird crow. Uh, first records for the period include a first blue jay in the Northwest Territories, first smooth-billed ani in Mississippi, a first zone-tailed hawk in Washington at Nia Bay, which has been producing tons of great Washington records over the last few years, a potential first northern cardinal in British Columbia, assuming provenance can be satisfactorily established. Also in that vein, a rufous collared sparrow was seen at a feeder in Yak, Montana, uh, would be a first record. Very odd one. That species is a widespread neotropical zonotrichia. It's the same genus that uh, if you're a North American birder, you're probably familiar with white-throated, white-crowned sparrows. Um, it's also the second rufous-collared sparrow along the front range of the Rockies in the last decade. There was one from Colorado, so a very unusual record, very strange, hard to know what to make of it at this point. Uh, those are the most noteworthy sightings for the period. November always seems to be a big rarity month. For a more complete look at rare birds in the ABA area, check out the ABA blog, blog.aba.org every Friday morning. And if you like hearing about rarities within minutes of their discovery, join us at the ABA Rare Bird Alert Facebook group. That's at facebook.com slash groups slash ABA Rare.
Before 2015, a 365-day round-the-world big year had never been attempted. The playing field was intimidating, the perceived cost was daunting, and the logistics were problematic. But in 2015, Noah Stricker tossed all of that aside, tackling an ambitious 365 days of birding that took him to all seven continents and ended with a list of well over 6,000 species, more than half of the world's bird species. His memoir detailing his exceptional year is called Birding Without Borders. It was published earlier this month. Noah is here to talk to me about his big year. Thanks for joining me, Noah. Hey, thanks, Nate. Let's talk about the the impetus of this big year. Prior to your effort, the the global big year was sort of a theoretical pursuit. No one had actually really seriously pursued you know, an entire year of birding. So what about what about birding and world birding in particular has changed in recent years that sort of allowed you to take it on? Well, you know, big years have been around for many decades in the birding world on all kinds of scales, going back to the days of Roger Tory Peterson in the 50s and Ken Kaufman's Kingbird Highway Adventure in the 70s and on throughout the decades. And the stakes have kind of been escalating and escalating. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody had Absolutely. quite taken on a worldwide big year before, but there had been other precedence. There was a pair of British birders, Alan Davies and Ruth Miller in 2008, did a bunch of birding in different countries, and they ended up seeing 4,341 species by the end of that year. So that was the official world record, the number to beat. I guess for me, I've always been interested in birding beyond our own U.S. borders and had done some traveling to different countries and all of a sudden realized that just in the past 10 years or so, birding on an international scale has come to be just as accessible as birding within the U.S. was just a couple of decades ago with the way that birders are connected to each other now with the internet. And so it all kind of came together. Yeah, you know, I think I was most impressed by sort of the logistical challenges that you overcame. You know, it's hard enough when you're you're birding outside of your comfort zone, outside of your patch to kind of get your head around you know, the many hundreds of new birds in one location. But you, you, you know, you're going around the world, you're looking at thousands of birds that you sort of have to have a, at least a passing familiarity with. Um, how did you sort of organize all this information as you went? Studying ahead of time was a big challenge. Yeah, I, <laughs> I had a grip at least on most of the birds in the Western Hemisphere because I visited, you know, parts of South America and Central America before. But especially for me personally, once I got to like Africa. I had never been to Africa before in my entire life. And there were thousands of species. Yeah. Old world birding is like a completely different animal. It's like whole families that are just completely, you know, hard to get your head around. They're you know, not like anything you see in the, yeah, in the world. Yeah, I was mixing up my aramomalas and camaropteras <laughs> and zitting and spitting and singing and whistling cysticolas and, yeah, absolutely. and all the rest. Yeah. <laughs> for, for me, really, the real strategy was to to try to study eBird and field guides as much as I could ahead of time so I could know what to expect, but also to connect with local birders in all these different places that could help me out. Yeah, and, and you did a you did a ton of that. Um, your strategy was to not to, you know, bird with perhaps Western birders who are, you know, located in those places, though you did and to some extent, but also with a lot of local birders. Um, how did you arrange all that as as you went? I had a plan before I started for pretty much every day of the year, where I would be, who I'd be burning with that day, where we'd be going more or less, and I had almost all my plane tickets booked. So I had a pretty good itinerary before I even started. It took me about five months of full-time planning to put that together before January 1st came around. But 
that was nice because it meant they didn't have to deal with logistics too much along the way. Right. I could still be flexible and make changes if I unexpectedly saw birds faster than I thought I would or needed more time in a certain area to track down some more species that way. But at least I had a plan and I could stick to it. You know, in addition to, to spending these long hours in the field, you also sort of had the, the energy and the, the wherewithal to constantly be updating this blog you kept on the Audubon website. And your diligence there was, was, was really something. So how were you able to, you know, keep motivated on that front to keep on that when you were undoubtedly exhausted every day birding dawn to dusk? I knew from the very beginning that I wanted to be able to share this adventure with other birders. And, uh, also be able to tell my mom and dad back home that I wasn't quite dead yet from one day to the next. <laughs> right. yeah. So uh, it was great that Audubon hosted this daily blog on their website, Birding Without Borders, and I was able to update it each day as long as I had internet, which you can find Wi-Fi just about anywhere these days. It was crazy. I was updating it from you know rural gas stations and stuff <laughs> along the way. <laughs> but um, no, it was really special. It, it was... Uh, kind of tiring some days to sit down at midnight or one o'clock in the morning after a long day of birding in the field and have to write out a blog entry and send it off and download photos and all the rest. But that was definitely worthwhile just from the feedback that I got along the way and people following along that really helped keep the momentum going. Yeah, I'm sure that was sort of, that's very motivating. I, like uh, a lot of people, um, were sort of following along on your blog throughout the years. Um, I wasn't a daily reader, but I, I checked back a couple times a week just to see where you were and how you're doing, particularly as the year went on and you got towards the end and you were getting towards the real, you know, the marks where you start hitting those high points, the breaking Alan Davis and Ruth Miller's record, the hitting 5,000, which was your initial target, and then on and on and on. I, I did note, however, that you know a lot of content for your blog didn't make it into the book or, or made it into some sort of you know abbreviated form. So how did you decide what parts of, of this blog story would make it into the, the book story? I know you had thousands of words. Was there some sort of angle in each experience you were looking for that sort of made it better suited to the, the final book product? Well, keeping a blog every day and writing a book reflecting on the big year are two very different things. The blog I saw more as a, you know, today I was here and I saw these things and I was with these people and it was reporting in the moment on what was happening. And the book was much more looking at it as a broader story and thinking about the narratives involved. Also, just the space was different. I added up the word count from each of those 365 daily blog posts that I wrote. If you put all those together, that is actually more than twice the length of the book. And so, yeah, I thought that might be the just case. Physically, <laughs> there wasn't enough room to put everything in. And it would have been counterproductive to even try. It would have just ended up being a long list of bird names and place names, which I think would be pretty boring in the end. So, the book was really starting from scratch and um, thinking about the broader meaning of all this stuff. Uh, you you talk a little bit about Arjen Dwerhus, and I'll, I'll you know I'll ask a little more about him in a bit. But this sort of is another sort of logistics question. Um, you you talk about his strategy when he announced it and how he had essentially you know sort of modified your route. 
Uh, and part of that was taking off what you called, you know, adventurous destinations, things like Antarctica or Cameroon or Myanmar, uh, places where the, the bird to effort ratio maybe wasn't as good as, as other sites. So your goal with this year was not just to see more birds in one year than anyone had ever done. Uh, but you also went in with this idea of the book kind of shaping your your narrative. Were there any, you know, accommodations that you made when you you sought out maybe the narrative first or was it just that no one had ever done this before and, you know, Cameroon seemed like a, a better bet than it sort of ended up being? There were one or two places that even from the beginning, I knew I wouldn't see as many birds per day as I might have if I went elsewhere. I mean, a good example is Antarctica, where I spent the first week of the year. There's only about 20 species on the entire continent. So I knew I was making some sacrifices. Yeah, very dramatic species, but not very many. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was about finding 5,000 birds. That was my personal goal. But I knew that I could probably get to 5,000 birds and still see some pretty adventurous places along the way. And so for me, it was about more than just the numbers. It was about seeking out some of these interesting stories, too. Yeah, you certainly had some some difficulties along the way as well. I, you know, Cameroon, where your, your guy ended up using the money for, that you wired him for something else. And, um, you know, obviously there's, there's challenges that go in that you didn't necessarily expect. Is there any particular really frustrating moment that you had during the year where you where you didn't get what you expected or was it all sort of you know relatively on the whole scale of things you know easy going i don't know about easy going <laughs> with relatively a trip like speaking, this yeah. <laughs> you want misadventures i think but not catastrophes and right that's a good that's point that's how this ended up playing out which was great i think the one thing that could have slowed me down the most maybe was a serious health issue along the way or being involved in a car accident i think was my number one worst fear maybe besides getting burned out on birds but that's a whole different uh, fear yeah. <laughs> um it played out in the end where I, I never had anything stolen from me I, I never got robbed to my face anyway i i never <laughs> lost anything i never had anyone show me up and just not show up for coming out birding, which I thought was extraordinary because a lot of these people had only had like one or two Facebook chats before landing in their country. And and so I was amazed with how smoothly in general things came together. Continuing on this, this uh, on Aryan, you know, he came, Aryan Dwyer, who's the Dutch birder, he came along the year after ended up breaking the record that you had set. How did, how did it feel to have that you know, record stand for, for just one year. He was using a lot of your intel. Was the experience enough, even though you were, you know, no longer officially the record holder? Yeah, I thought it was great, actually. I think it adds to the story and having someone else coming along to challenge you. I, kn I knew that this would eventually be challenged some way or other, and um, better sooner than later, I suppose. I I don't know if I want to be that guy who did a big year once for the rest of my life. <laughs> right, right, right. But, um, no, it was cool. I I heard about Ariane first in about March or April while I was out already in my big year and didn't hear too much about his plans until later on in the year when it became clear that he was definitely going for the world record no matter what it would take. And so he did the best possible thing in terms of strategy, which is to learn from my mistakes and uh, tweak the itinerary accordingly. So um, all the best to him. Yeah, well, there's certainly something to be said for being the first one to tackle this as well, because his his original plan was like completely different. Like he was something along the kind of Alan Davies, Ruth Miller model where they would he was going to return back to the Netherlands between trips and all that. I mean, you totally changed the game and, and set this standard that was, I guess, enticing. <laughs> 
Well, it was a fun adventure in any case, and uh, I think probably other people will do Global Big Gears uh, farther down the line, and I'm looking forward to seeing what new directions people will take it in. And I think you mentioned this, too. You know, we're almost sort of at like a golden era of this sort of thing, where the where you know, it's easier than ever to find, especially some of these species that have historically been very difficult, and we're not quite at the point where bird populations have fallen off so badly that you know you can't find these birds. Do you think that that will play a role going forward? I do think we are in a kind of golden age of international birding, and I think there are many parallels between birding the world today and birding the U.S. in the 1970s when you know listing was kind of a new thing and people were really getting excited about it and. If you look back at articles written by, like, Stuart Keith, one of the first ABA founders in the 1970s, he actually wrote an article for Birding Magazine at one point where he said he thought that it would be really cool to see half the birds in the world over the course of a lifetime. And he finally achieved that after something like 26 years of birding the world. And so I think that now, having achieved that in less than one year, that's almost come full circle, and that's kind of a cool thing. What kind of birding do you enjoy doing now, now that you've gone to the, you know, arguably the, the farthest extreme uh, of birding, you know, seeing 6,000-odd species in a year? What, what do you, what have you learned, have you learned to appreciate more what you do on sort of a smaller scale, having done this, this global big year? Yeah, for sure. One of the most frustrating parts of this big year was not ever being to spend quite enough time in any particular place to really soak up everything there was to see there before I had to move on. And so I felt rushed a lot of the time. That said, I'm, I still love birding in exotic places and going and seeing, but I mean, if I'm, I did not get sick of birding the world. It was actually kind of the opposite. It's like feeding an addiction. It doesn't go away. It just messes <laughs> you up even worse than you were before. And so I think I'll be a committed world birding addict for the rest of my life now, probably. Now that you've hit the like the very the sort of the obvious places, you can uh, you can go off the beaten path a little bit and try some of these new That's spots right. out. I can go back to some places. This was like a scouting mission for the rest of my life, I guess. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. There you go. Um, did you did you come away from this year with any sort of like bigger picture understanding of the the global birding community, the growth of birding in other parts of the world? I thought it was neat to be able to bird all of these places in the course of one year instead of over a lifetime, which many people might strive for. And it gives you this kind of like snapshot perspective of what's going on in the world right now with birds and birders. It was neat to see how the culture of birding differs from one region to the next and that there are birders in pretty much every country in the world now, I think. Just in the past, again, 10 or 15 years, birding has gone from this first world pursuit to a very much more international one. So I was able to find local birders in all these places, but the way they're going about it isn't necessarily always the same. And so like Southeast Asia was all about bird photography. If you didn't have a big lens, you almost weren't a birder in a lot of those countries. And South America... Uh, has a lot of bird guiding mentality. It's almost like birding is a business, but it's much more of a young person's game. Like in Colombia, I didn't meet any older birders. They're all my age, which I thought was crazy. <laughs> yeah, I, I was in Colombia last year, and I, I felt the same way. You know, there's a and a part of it is you know there's it's this 
the country has now opened up and, you know, people who are younger are sort of seeing opportunities uh, and particularly people who are sort of interested in nature. Totally. Colombia has this whole burning renaissance going on. You can get into places you haven't been able to visit for a long time. And so there's still discovering new species of birds there. And um, that's very exciting. Um, do you think there's anything that American birders can learn from some of the birders that you that you met in other places? Yeah, I think uh, it's almost like, you know, when you go to a lot of these other countries, cell service is a lot better than you get in the U.S. because they never had the whole landline <laughs> system. And so they just jumped straight to the cell network. And, and so they're embracing this new technology. I think the same is going on with birding that uh, they don't have this... Hmm history necessarily in a lot of these places of how birding should be approached and so they're finding their own ways to do it that's really interesting cool well and thanks so much noah uh, the story of noah strigger's incredible global big year is birding without borders it's available wherever books are sold including the aba's partner beauty of books he is going to be all over the place in the next few months um where can people find your schedule uh, you can go on my website, noahstricker.com, and there's an events page with all of my upcoming appearances listed. Check that out and meet up with Noah down the road. Um, thanks again, and, and congrats on the book and a phenomenal year. Well, thanks so much, Nate. Thanks. This was fun. I'm Greg Neese, and if you've been here before with us, you know that lurking somewhere nearby is Ted Floyd. Ted, are you there? Here I am, lurking nearby. Ted, of course, the editor of Birding Magazine. You know, I was uh, I was at a hawk watch uh, a week or so ago, and I love doing hawk watches. But the highlight of this one was a flock of red crossbills. And I think in your neck of the woods, same as mine, red crossbills seem to be just about everywhere. You know, they're everywhere, but but nowhere. That's sort of how it is with <laughs> with, with crossbills. I think it's one of the real thrills of, of crossbills. You can't really stake one out. You just have to sort of luck out and, and have a flock going over, I think, just as you experienced. Yeah, well, actually, this and this one was, was uh, this group, it was about 25 birds. And um, I was standing in the parking lot at a ski resort in Illinois. All right, that in itself is... Yeah, I'm trying to wrap my yeah, mind ra- Exactly, wrap your, wrap your mind around that. It's the only, it's the only one of its kind in Illinois. Um, Chestnut Mountain Ski Resort on a bluff overlooking the Mississippi River uh, up near Dubuque, Iowa. And I was standing in the parking lot, and this flock of birds came swirling in around the building and I thought when they came you know when they flew by I thought well first there's got to be a feeder here someplace and this is the local gang of house sparrows and they they circled and looked like they were trying to land in the parking lot and then they flew and landed right over my head giving their very distinctive jip 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 calls and you know there's the biggest flock of crossbills I've ever seen in my home state or at least red crossbills yeah so it was really really exciting and and now they're they're like you said. They're everywhere and nowhere. That's the crossbill way. I hadn't seen crossbills in, in actually quite some time, and then just oh gosh, it must have been about a week or so now. I was just running a totally mindless errand here in my home around uh, Denver, and as you, you you heard jip jip jip, I heard q q q. So I was listening to a type two red crossbill, and I think it was just a single bird flying straight east, and then who knows where it was going because it's not crossbill habitat out to our east. 
Well, and that's, you know, that's interesting because I think they are moving from west to east. What we, I don't think it's an invasion yet, but it seems like it, it might be headed that way. The first indication that we in the Great Lakes might be getting Red Cross bills was uh, reportings in Iowa and Nebraska. Uh, I think there was one uh, one report from northern Nebraska of all kinds of mountain birds moving, and it's it could be an interesting winter. I don't know what's the. Do you have any idea what the cone, cone crop is like? I don't know about the cone crop. We've had uh, a lot of sort of uh, biological activity though going on in the the mountains. You know, this has been a summer of a worse than usual wildfire activity yeah Yeah, you know everybody knows about what's going on in california uh there were also major fires in montana there have been a number of fires out here in colorado also in in utah so it was thought earlier that a lot of the birds might have been moving in response to the fires and all over canada too there's also the um sort of longer term problem here in colorado in particular of the um the the beetle kill uh so the, uh, the the mountain pine forests are being rapidly transformed by uh, the um, the beetles to get under the bark of the pine trees and and uh, and, and kill them. So the, the whole situation with mountain birds in Colorado and elsewhere mm. in the Intermountain West is, is sort of in long term flux. And especially with the fires and some of the really hot, dry weather of late here, there's just been an awful lot of movement of of mountain birds. You you, you mentioned crossbills, but uh, everything from Williamson sapsucker to um, oh big flocks of Clark's nutcrackers way out on the plains, things like that. You know, we talked about about crossbills. I when I had this flock of crossbills in front of me, and they weren't particularly noisy, but they were making a little bit of noise. And it wasn't until they flew away that I realized I have a recording device in my pocket, and I never pulled it out. I <laughs> I never got a recording to figure out what type those birds might be, which is is one of the most exciting thing things about red crossbills now is. We've got all these red crossbill types that we can tell apart by taking voice recordings. Yeah, and I'll uh, address maybe what is sort of both the, uh, the the good news and the bad news there. I'll I'll start with the good news, and I think you've sort of alluded to it already, and that's the fact that in this day and age, you can very quickly obtain a high quality recording of a red crossbill with nothing more than than your smartphone, uh, especially sort of the more recent smartphones. So I use a, a an iPhone seven. And they're very good at picking up flight calls. And I'm talking about the dinky flight calls of orange-crowned warblers and white-crowned sparrows for the really loud, powerful, pounding flight calls of, of red crossbills. Your smartphone is more than adequate for that purpose. So if you have a smartphone, and I know many of our listeners do, you're probably in good shape to record a red crossbill. So there was a flip side or a downside to this. And maybe I shouldn't call it the, the bad. It's just a, the, the challenge. And I'll address this from a uh, sort of a, a personal level. I find that the more I know about red crossbill vocalizations, the less confident I am about my ability, or frankly anybody's ability, <laughs> to correctly identify them with the uh, with the naked ear, if you will. I just am increasingly finding that what I think I'm hearing is a, a mismatch to the the spectrogram and. You know the old saying: there are lies, damned lies, and spectrograms. And I really think that that applies to uh, to uh, acoustic birding as well. Our ears and brains are amazing things, but they make amazing mistakes. And there's really no substitute for getting a, a, a recording. Right. So what you're saying is, uh, how, how did you describe the uh, the crossbill that you had fly over earlier? A, a pounding q q q. So that's the uh, t- t- that that's my personal sort of transliteration of the 
sharply descending flight call of the Type 2 Red Cross bill. That, that's our common Colorado cross bill. Right. Um, we call it the Ponderosa Pine cross bill for the rather obvious reason that it favors Ponderosa pines. But uh, other cross bills have calls that go up and others have calls that go up and down and down and up and so forth. And uh, they're what we call their spectrographic signature. So the, the way that they look on a spectrogram is, is very distinctive. It's almost like the uh, well, sort of an analogy for the, the DNA fingerprint, but it's the, the fingerprint of the bird's vocalization. Exactly. And our ability to to hear that and accurately describe it. I mean, with just a with just a little bit of imagination, you know, I could turn the what I remember as jip 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 into QQQ. Right. <laughs> and and still be fairly accurate. I have that problem with yeah, again, sort of the more I listen to the flight calls of of warblers and sparrows. And this may be a function of just a, an aging ears and brain, but I also think it has a function of the uh, accumulation of wisdom. And, and that's just the uh, awareness that there's a lot of variation up there in the sky. And even though these calls tend to be sort of stereotyped, I think that there's something, you know, the, the wind or even the humidity in the air or some other distracting sound can really affect the way that we perceive something. Absolutely. And you fall into patterns too. Um, you know, another hawk watch that I did recently, we had palm warblers moving past in big numbers and an orange crown went by and, you know, you get so used to hearing the palm warblers that the orange crown really stands out. But if that was just a lone bird on an otherwise silent day, you might not, it, it might not stand out as much. It seems like every single encounter is sort of a, uh, case study unto itself and uh, everyone involved a different sort of challenge. All right. So I haven't heard too much about white wing crossbills moving. I mean, there's been a little bit in the, in the Northeast, but they really haven't been seen anywhere outside of what would be considered normal range. And their calls, you know, they're pretty easy to identify. I mean, they, they really do have a distinctive sound and I likened it to uh, rapid blaster fire, you know, from Star Wars, especially a flock of them going by sounds like a blaster shootout. I, I don't disagree with that. I'll, I'll also say that a uh, a white wing crossbill is really worth the effort to try to see the bird. I, I know that it's just another crossbill and it's in the same genus, but the uh, that kind of really bright rosy pink just always captures my attention. There's something just very radiant about it, and, and of course those brilliant white wing bars as well. So, well, hey, um, it's always good talking with you, Ted. Every, pretty much everybody from East Coast to West Coast, this is the time to get out and find some Red Cross bills because they are really moving. Yeah, they're moving. And I'll say that you can sort of enjoy them at any level that you want to. If you just want to call them Red Cross bills and enjoy the spectacle of a big brick red finch with goofy looking bills, that is totally cool. And if you want to get into the uh, the nuances of trying to separate them by flight call or even more challengingly by, by bill morphology, that's taking it to the next level. All right, Ted, we got to head out. All righty. Well, thanks for having me and we'll do it next time.
The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to learn more about birds and birding, consider joining the American Birding Association. The ABA provides resources, events, publications that seek to help you enjoy your birding more, no matter how you do it. You can get more information at aba.org join. President of the ABA and executive producer of the podcast is Jeffrey Gordon. Technical production is by John Lowry with help from Greg Neese and David Hartley. We are online at aba.org, on Facebook at facebook.com slash birders, and on Twitter at ABA. Not to be confused with the American Betting Association, which by all accounts appears to be a relatively recently created group of one individual who is seeking to jump into the world of online mattress reviewing If you're a podcast fan, I'm sure you've heard those ubiquitous Casper mattress adverts on every other podcast out there. I read this article about a month ago about the crazy world of online mattress retail and never thought there would be an intersection with the ABA, but there it is. There's no joke here, folks. I just was sort of shocked that this thing exists. You should know that we will never go down that path. All right, one joke. I didn't mean to spring that on you. Two jokes. Two jokes. I don't have any more. For real, I'm really drawing a blank yet. Three, three jokes. If you made it this far, perhaps I can encourage you to go a bit further and leave a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Your comments provide us with valuable feedback and help people find us. Questions and comments can come to me at podcast at aba.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Till next time.